welcome to It Just So Happened. I am Richard Pulsford, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show, recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 8th of August. That's before we delve into some of the history of the place where today's show is taking place. So where are we? Well, it's where Sir Sean Connery worked on a milk round. It's where Harry Potter was conceived. And a place renowned for its smell. Once known as Old Ricky, yes, it's Edinburgh. We are performing the show in the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, the largest arts festival in the world. And our venue this afternoon is The Space at Surgeons Hall, the headquarters of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, with its own museum, library and archive. Designed by William Henry Playfair and completed in 1832, it's one of the many Category A-listed buildings in the city. During the Fringe, the space venue hosts four performance spaces and about 100 different shows. And we have an audience in the museum with us today. As the Fringe welcomes audiences of up to 400,000 people each year, so we welcome about one one-hundred-thousandth of that number <laughs> to this show. It may be even less than that, I think. But what's drawn in such huge numbers? Well, let me introduce today's panel. Please welcome Alex Sleem, Lewis Alcada and Angus Coots. I'm sorry, I've missed them out today already. <laughs> so, very briefly, Alex Sleem, I know you're a stand-up and MC and a one-time DJ. Do you just want to tell us very briefly a bit more about yourself? Uh, well, you summed it up quite nicely, actually. Quite no? uh, yeah, uh, so, uh, comedian, former DJ. Although the term former DJ is, is a bit dodgy these days. You think, oh, hello, why did he get saved? <laughs> but, but no, it was, it was for legitimate reasons, honest God, honest. And no, no tax offences? No, 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 I, 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 I can't remember that. my last pay tax. Okay. So it's, well. Let me get your name right. Is it Lewis? Lewis, yeah. Alcada? Alcada. Alcada, I'm so sorry, Lewis. Right, Lewis yes. Alcada. So yeah. do you want to say a little bit about yourself? Uh, yes, so I'm a comedian. I run something called The Icebreaker, which is like Dundee's whole comedy scene for a very long time. And yeah, first time doing a full run at the Edinburgh Fringe. I, I've got pretty good audience, but they're all like an hour down the road, <laughs> which turns out is a long time to travel. Yeah. And Angus Coots, you are uh, the ideal panellist for the show because you're both a standard comedian and a tour guide for historical tours in Edinburgh, is that right? That's right, yeah. and I've got a face for podcasting. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> what more could we want? But yeah, I, uh, I, I tour guide around the city, so I show people around the Really, essentially, I walk around and tell lies about Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> there's um, quite a lot of those going around. So many, yeah. so many. Um, and yeah, uh, by night I, I stand on stage and tell dick jokes. So, yeah. so do you just stop at random cafes and say, yeah, that's the one that she wrote it in? She wrote in notes, didn't yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the pen she used. Yeah, yeah that's the notepads. Okay, brilliant. Well, I'll give you a chance to promote your fringe shows at the end of the show, but let's move straight on, Alex, please, for your first On This Day piece. Okay, thanks. Well, on this day in 2021, I invented the courtesy fart. Uh, so that's basically when you're in a room full of people and you, you know it's it's brewing, you know it's going to be awful. You, you make excuses and leave and go outside for a couple of minutes and, and then come back again. Uh, so courtesy fart, remember that. Uh, also on this day, I, I had a bit of a devil of a time trying to find something that was cheerful or, or remotely nice. It was a weird process looking up events that happened on the 8th of August. Uh, I spent an unhealthy amount of time on the famous deaths article. Uh, so flicking through, that's an hour of my life I'm not getting back. So they've got a list of famous deaths dating back to 1445, and the only one that I've heard of was Glen Campbell. 
who died on this day, on the 8th of August. Um, on a lighter note, I then clicked through to TV and films. I thought, well, that's going to be a bit jollier. First two facts were, on this day in 1968, Jack Nicholson got divorced. <laughs> I thought, okay, the next one. On this day in 2001, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman got divorced. <laughs> this was getting depressing, so I thought, I'll try sport. Uh, clicked onto sports. On this day in 1982, Eric Brandon, British racing driver, dies at the age of 62. <laughs> I'm starting to think 8th of August might be the most depressing day in history <laughs> at this point. Uh, so I'm getting desperate for a whimsical, light, funny fact. After all, this is a comedy show, not a TED talk. Uh, so I click back to the chronological facts. On this day in 1925, the Ku Klux Klan meet for the first time in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> it gets worse. On this day in 1960, Itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini gets to number one. <laughs> and then in 1963, the Kingsman released Louie Louie and it gets banned for being obscene. Why? It's not obscene. I'm amazed he could understand the lyrics. I looked the lyrics up. It's Louie Louie, me got to go. Fine little girl, she waits for me. Me catch the ship for cross the sea. That's obscene, apparently. But the grammar's obscene. <laughs> not the content not the content that's probably why I got banned actually yeah because yeah. it's just absolutely terrible eventually I found something and it was on this day in 1988 in New York City they recorded a record temperature of 88 degrees Fahrenheit so why pick this fact well two reasons one it's memorable because on the 8th of the 8th 88 it was 88 and two all the decent facts were taken because I'm the most disorganised one on the panel <laughs> So there must have been two or three emails between me and Richard saying, Richard, I've got one. No, you haven't. No, you really haven't. Um, also, it's quite a memorable date because it's the um, rare times that the Americans get the date order right. <laughs> <laughs> Bless them. Bless them. Um, so uh, New York in the 80s was, was memorable for a, uh, and quite historical for, for a couple of reasons. One uh, being it was the time when the financial district was booming and Wall Street. But also, it was um, quite renowned for heavy crime, heavy drug use. When I was saying this to a friend of mine, he went, oh, it's in New York's a bit like Glasgow. <laughs> and that's why on this day, I eventually found uh, temperature. That's the best thing I could come up with, temperature. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well Thank you. So I'm going to do a couple of segue pieces between the panellists. So this is my first one. And uh, I'm going to ask some questions to the panellists, so you can give me what you think might be the right answers. Question, when was the first documented balloon flight in Europe? How's it a guess at that? You don't need to get it right. 6.41. AD 6.41. Or was that just the time? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 6.41 afternoon. I'm going to say 1888. Okay, you're closer. 6.41, <laughs> I'll give you that. I'll, I'll um, go 1889 then. I'm going to be serious <laughs> by 1760s. Um, it was the 8th of August, so it's on this day, in 1709. Ah, it gives an image of Phileas Fogg in my head. Right, well, so. okay, so the Montgolfier brothers, they may have demonstrated their first hot air balloon in France, but that was actually in 1783. But I'm talking about something that predated this by 74 years. Now, I've already given you a hint that I want to talk about a Portuguese person on the show, and that's where I'm going to introduce, I don't know how you say this name either, is it Bartolomeu de Gusmao? Gusmao? M A with a thing in the top. You've been Dundee too. Anyway, well let's call him Bartolomeu. 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 
Bart. I'll call him yeah. Bart then. Yeah, call him Bart. So Bart was Bart a Bart. He was a Brazilian Portuguese priest. He was 24 years old when he managed to lift a small balloon made of paper full of hot air about four metres off the ground by setting fire to fuel within an earthenware container slung below the balloon. It worked perfectly. Went up in the air, flame went out, and so it came down. Importantly, though, who witnessed that demonstration? What was the year? Sorry? What was the year again? Uh, 1709. So this is your Portuguese history being tested here. I'm going to say... <laughs> His family, because that's how Portuguese <laughs> people work. <laughs> they probably just got drunk with family dinner. Not sure about the family. Was it was it was it a famous renowned inventor of the time? Um, he he did it in front of the king. Yeah, yeah. He, so it was King John V. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I haven't met him personally. No, <laughs> yeah. no it was a while ago. Yeah. Um, so it happened on the patio of the House of India in Lisbon, mm-hmm. in front of King John V and the Portuguese court. But it was actually his third attempt. So, uh, any guesses of what might have happened in the first two attempts? Because the third attempt was successful. Well, get, uh, well, going up in flames, I think, is the first one, because, like, paper with some fire underneath it. Yeah, you would think, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, he, he basically nearly set the palace alight, so it could have <laughs> gone badly wrong. And he also burned two of the cassocks he was wearing, as it could have gone badly wrong for him as well. That sounds um, really painful. It does, yes. Yeah. You don't want to burn your cassocks. Um, so, what did the king make of it? Which is probably the most important part of him. I'm guessing he liked it, because I've heard of the name before. Like, ah. When kings don't like something, they tend to disappear from history altogether. Mm. Yeah, the king was very impressed by this demonstration. He made him a cannon and granted him the rights of any and all flying ships from then on. And for all those who dared to intervene or to copy his ideas, the penalty would be death. Bart wanted to build a machine to then fly people. Sounds like a good idea. His design was a balloon in the form of a bird with a tail and wings and a boat underneath. The inventor was called Passarola, which I believe means big bird. Mm -hmm. It was filled with numerous tubes through which the wind would flow and fill out the bulges to give it shape. Now it's said that he attempted to lift himself from St. George Castle in Lisbon and landed about one kilometre away. But unfortunately the claim cannot be verified. Otherwise, he might as well be the first person to fly. So what happened, do you think, to Bart after King John V died? Because I hadn't heard of this guy before. I'm sure there's something named after him in airport or something in Portugal. So, okay. yeah. so did, did he have, like, second album syndrome? <laughs> he, he couldn't quite follow that up with something. He just like kept burning it. different Every- things and none of them lifted. Everything is a DJ reference. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, the king died, and then the commoners didn't trust Bart because they thought he was a bit of a wizard. So they reported him to the Portuguese Inquisition, which I didn't know was a thing, not just the Spanish. Bart was terrified of the Inquisition, took the advice of his friends, burned his manuscripts, disguised himself, and fled to Spain, where he died in hospital. Which I think is rather sad, because otherwise more people might have heard of the guy. The 8th of August is depressing. It is, isn't <laughs> it? But he didn't burn himself to death. Well, that's, that's palace, But yes, I, I know what you're saying. Swings around us. Yeah. And now it's pretty well to now. Lunch for your piece. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I am one of the people you mentioned that stole one of the great things that happened. On this, <laughs> this is great. Yeah, you've all heard of the great train robbery, I assume. Yeah. Mm. It has been described as the one of the greatest crimes of the century, which is a I love it because it's actually pretty crap. Like, I'd say it was the okay train robbery at best. Like, I love how 
heist movie, so I was expecting them to like jump onto the train from a helicopter. And it was like, basically someone who worked at the train company heard about this, hired 15 people to rob this train. Which, first of all, that's too many people. Like, I can't get that many people to come to the pub. He got 15 people to rob a train. And what they did was they went up to the red lights, plugged the generator on, and then just waited. And the train just stopped at the red lights. The truck, the driver comes out. Truck driver, the fireman comes out. Fireman's the person who drives the train. Came out, looked around, and went, fuck this, I'm out of here. Just saw 15 guys there and went, they're not paying me hero money. I'm going to go on a smoke break. And so 15 guys just went around the train. They had no guns or anything. They just had a lot of cautious. Just 15 guys with sticks going around, no security. It's basically a stag do got a bit too far. They, just, <laughs> they stole the equivalent of 28 million today, which is a lot of money. Like... That, that's enough for a flat for the whole festival. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just took the money. Now, this is where, it go- up to this point, everything's on track. But this is where it goes off the rails. Which is fun. So, like, let's put this to the panel, actually. You've just stole nearly 30 million in cash. What's the first thing you do? Any guesses? What's, what's the first thing you should do? Spend have, it. Have a big piss up. Yeah. That's, that's what they... See, to <laughs> me, it must be the Portuguese thing. First thing I did was leave the country. <laughs> Just first point to the Bahamas, live out happy. First thing these guys did was go to a farm in Buckinghamshire and start playing Monopoly with real money. Like, this is the truth. <laughs> <laughs> like, they were planning to hide there for a while. The official story is the police was getting a bit too close. I think what actually happened is you start arguing because that's what happens. Just fifteen hardened criminals going, "I wanted to be the wheelbarrow. <laughs> I'm always the wheelbarrow. No, you're the top hat." So after like a whole day of this, they went, "Nah, we're out of here." Left to London, hired the guy called Brian, paid Brian a thousand pounds to burn the farm. Brian forgot. <laughs> that looks like no. Next time you feel bad about procrastinating. This guy got paid a thousand pounds by criminals to burn a farm. And just went on Facebook. I don't know. <laughs> didn't even have Facebook in the 60s. I don't know what he did. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so the police found the farm. And uh, these were professional criminals. Even if they weren't very good at it. Uh, so they wiped all the surfaces. Police couldn't find anything. Except for the Monopoly boards. <laughs> Generally... One of the greatest crimes of the century. The police found them because they found a fingerprint in this tiny metal dog that someone had been playing with. So they arrested 14 of the members. Straight to prison. No passing go. No collecting. <laughs> 20 million. A lot more weirder details. But basically the most famous one of all the guys. You might have heard a guy called Ronnie Biggs. Yeah who managed to escape from prison, lived out his life in Brazil, and in 2001, when he was 71, came back to London because, and I quote, he really wanted a pint of bitter. (laughs) I love that so much, just this expat living in this tropical island in Brazil, enjoying his stolen millions, thinking, this is shit. (laughs) Can't even get a pint of Belfast. 
Belhaven? Belhaven around here. Just <laughs> Belfast. Just came back to London and got arrested here. Uh, and to end on a happy note, though, there was one of the guys who actually escaped. He was only known as Flossie, and none of the other members knew his real name or where he lived. Uh, all we know about him is the last description one of the other members said. Flossie was, last time they saw him, he was in a safe house with, quote, two gorgeous girls and enough champagne to sink a battleship. <laughs> so there we go. One happy thing happened on this day. <laughs> One happy ending. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so my second segue questions the panel. On this day in 1966, the South African Broadcasting Corporation banned all Beatles records. Why? Um, w- would that be around about the time when, when Lennon made his famous Bigger Than Jesus? Yes. So was that what it is? Yes, it is. So it's following the reaction to... In the US, the comment taken out of context about John Lennon saying in an interview to Maureen Cleave that the band were bigger than Jesus. Now, he'd given the interview in March 66, and Lennon was basically arguing that the public were more infatuated with the band than with Jesus, and that Christian faith was declining to the extent that it might be outlasted by rock music. And this drew no controversy at the time when it was published in the London Evening Standard. But when it eventually sort of arrived in the southern US, the article was republished in July. Some radio stations stopped playing the Beatles songs, records were then publicly burned, press conferences were cancelled, and the Ku Klux Klan picketed concerts, which, um, you know, uh, and that led to the South African Broadcasting Corporation also banning all Beatles records. And the controversy coincided with the band's 66 US tour and the release of their album Revolver. Lennon apologised at a series of press conferences and explained that he was not comparing himself to Christ, but it helped cement that band's decision not to tour again, something Lennon also never did as a solo artist. And when Lennon was murdered in 1980 by Mark David Chapman, a Christian fan of the Beatles, he later stated that Lennon's quote was a motivating factor in the killing. But also on this day, in 1969, the Beatles posed for an outdoor photo session at NW89AY. Where was this? Well, the Abbey Road, wasn't it? It was Abbey Road, yeah. yes, on the Zebra Crossing. Mm-hmm. For the cover of the Beatles' last studio recorded album, it took place just outside the studio. How many shots did photographer Ian McMillan take, do you think, on that photo shoot? I think I heard something. It's always in the 40s, 50s? Even less than that. Even less than that? Yes. It was a grand total of six shots. Six? Yeah. He stood on a stepladder. Did you know that one? Yeah. Yeah. He he stood on a stepladder in the middle of the road while a policeman stopped the traffic. And after they'd finished being photographed, they decided it was much too early to start recording. This is one version of the story uh, where it said that Ringo went shopping, Paul took John back to his home for a cup of tea, and George went to visit Regent's Park Zoo. I've read different versions of what happened there, but yes, rock and roll. What made this particular Beatles album cover unique compared to their previous ones? One of them was a man's shoes. They're always wearing shoes for the rest of the album. I'll come to that, yes. So uh, that was uh, George. No, sorry. uh, Paul wasn't wearing shoes on the Zebra Crossing. Uh, Okay, so I'll jump ahead. That's not it. well, that's true. I don't, it probably wasn't. <laughs> that probably was unique to it. So, yes, Paul McCartney took his sandals off for the shoot. And why has this been seen as a clue to a conspiracy theory? 
Oh, I know the conspiracy theory that Paul died. Yes. But I don't know why that would be it. Um, well, you're just sort of making stuff up when you're around the conspiracy about, yeah, why, let's see. It was, so some people said, oh, yes, obviously, the way the photo shoot is, it's like a, a funeral procession. So George is the grave digger, the way he's dressed. Paul is the corpse. Ringo is the congregation, and John is the priest. <laughs> I think they're reaching there. Yeah, yes. I like a conspiracy theory. That's a bit much for me. So the idea is that Paul McCartney was killed in a car accident in 1966 and was replaced by um, a, a kind of lookalike stand-in who just happened to be also a good musician. And so he was walking barefoot. This was meant to be a clue that somehow uh, they planted these messages in the album covers and so on. Also, the white Volkswagen Beetle that bears the number plate uh, 281F is interpreted as meaning Paul would have been 28 if he had survived. Although he'd actually just turned 27. So even that's <laughs> they're, they're rubbish. Making, they're making anti-vaxxers seem credible. Yeah. Yes. Well, this, is, this is a really old conspiracy theory compared to the other. And finally, the police van on the cover is usually seen at traffic fatalities. Interesting. The album cover was unique because it was the only, one and only time the Beatles had an album cover that didn't feature their name or the title of the LP. And do you know what was on the back cover of the album? The DJ is looking with furrowed brow. Uh, I've got a clue. Most of them. What, was it just a track listing? It was the street sign with the name Abbey Road to NWA. Oh, God. But it was taken at the other end of the street from Zebra Crossing. Mm. Uh, one of the first ideas for the name of the album was to call it Everest. Any idea why that might have interest? Is that a conservatory? I was just going to go for it. It's the highest mountain in the world. I don't know if you know it. It's quite a famous one, uh, Mount Everest. Yes. Yeah. That would be quite better. So we've got double glazing, we've got mountain, and it's also the name of the cigarettes they used to smoke. Ah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, well, actually, it's the name of the brand of the cigarettes that engineer Jeff Emmerich smoked during the sessions. So I was going to go with technically right. Just 12 days later saw the last time all four Beatles members recorded in the studio together. And exactly two weeks later, they all had one last photo shoot together at John's house in Ascot. One of the pictures was later used on the cover of the Hey Jude compilation LP. On 22nd of May 2012, one of the outtakes from the photography session sold at auction in London. How much do you think it fetched? Just a random number. It was £16,000, so someone mm. paid that for... Well, that's not that as much as I would have no, thought. No, no, People go nuts for them. And there's yeah. only six photos were taken as well, mm. so you'd think they'd be well. Okay, so let's move on with the show, and it's over to you, Angus, now for your On This Day topic. Okay, so it's obviously it's someone's birthday, but what I really want to talk about is uh, Scottish football and why it's better than English football. Um, <laughs> so, like, um, I feel like, are you guys from England? No. No? Great. We were originally, but we live in Dumfries. Oh, that's fair enough. <laughs> You're like, oh no, I'm not, I'm, I'm Scottish. Oh, yeah, that's fair enough, that's cool. Um, well, I, I firmly believe that Scottish football is better than English football, and not because of the standard, the quality, which to be fair, isn't actually that bad. I went to a Premier League game last season and it was garbage. Not good at all. Uh, it was Newcastle versus Burnley in December, and neither of them had won a game by that point. Um, and Scottish football's good, it's fun, but the most fun thing about Scottish football is it is still filled with characters, people that you can actually kind of understand and relate to. Like um, Gary McKay Steve, currently plays for Hearts, but he's played for Celtic, he's played for Aberdeen, he's played for Airdrie, he's been about Scotland a little bit. Gary McKay Steve got shit faced in Glasgow and decided it would be a good idea to go for 
a swim in the Clyde. He almost died. <laughs> <laughs> a professional athlete. Lee Griffiths has played for Dundee, Hibs, Celtic. And he decided that it would be a good idea when he was playing for Celtic to shoplift Lucasade from Tesco. He's got like six kids, so he's probably not got too much money, to be fair. Um, uh, one of my absolute favourites is uh, Gary O'Connor. He played in Russia for a bit. He was at Birmingham City, played for Hibs as well. Uh, Gary O'Connor crashed his Ferrari in East Lothian. Uh, this was back when he was just over from a trip from Russia. He was getting paid silliness. Crashed his Ferrari and he got caught by the police. And the police said, what's your name? And he was a bit worried because he was full of cocaine. And he said, my name is Johnston. And he said, okay, Mr. Johnston, how do you spell that? And he said, J-O-S. No Johnston in the world is spelled J-O-S. Absolutely not. Um, I love him. Now, my all-time favourite, all-time favourite is Kirk Brodsby. Currently playing in a non-league team just outside Glasgow. Uh, Kirk Brodsby used to play for Rangers. Kirk Brodsby played in the UEFA Cup Final. Missed another cup final. He missed a cup final because he injured himself in the dumbest way. And I think when I say this, you all can think, yeah, it could happen to anyone. Uh, he decided he wanted some poached eggs for his breakfast. So he gets the egg, he heats up some water in the microwave, takes it out of the microwave, plops the egg in, and as soon as that goes in, it splashes out, burns his foot, and he can't play for two weeks. Missed <laughs> <laughs> the cup final. This is what happens in Scottish football, and is why it's better than English football, and it's also why it's never coming home. Um, <laughs> um, I think that was about a minute and a half. That's as much as I love it. Thank you, Angus. Thank you. So that gives us about 20 minutes or so to cover the second half of the show, which is where we uncover some of the history of Edinburgh. Now, as our venue today is Surgeons Hall, it seems only fitting to explore some of the history of surgery in the city. So, first question for the panel on the subject. When was the first legal dissection carried out in Scotland? I like the implication that there was some illegal dissection going on well, before. Well, that, that, that must have definitely yeah. was. Yeah. 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 I mean, I know the Anatomy Act was passed in 1829. Yeah, so I we're talking way before that. Before that, yeah, because... Yeah, um, so... 1760s? Now, Scottish law allowed for the purposes of anatomical research the dissection of bodies in cases where the individual had died in prison or committed suicide. I don't expect you to know this, but I'll ask the question anyway. What do we know about the first person to be dissected? They were dead. <laughs> they were dead. He died yes. in prison. I've had that answer before. <laughs> uh, died in prison, yes. He was called David Miles, with a Y. He was executed on the 27th of November for incest. His, sis his sister bore his child and the village found the corpse on the midden heap. Even though they claimed it was dead at birth, the bloke was done and hanged, and so was his sister, and authorised to be dissected. Now, no one had carried a corpse legally from the gallows to the cutting tables before. So, in terms of trades, what kind of person do you think got that job. Could be an ordinary guy. It's an ordinary guy. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like DHL or yeah. 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 Like strong boy. Or maybe a priest. Well, someone in the previous show said priest. And I thought, no, no, no. Priests are the ones, they're hands off. They make other people do the dirty work. Don't they? So they, I wasn't. They must have had someone who just collected the bodies during the plague. Because that guy just, did he have mm -hmm. another job doing non plague Street sweeper. Yeah. Yeah. Well, shall, shall I tell you? It was actually chimney sweeps. Oh. 
Uh, well, it doesn't seem so obvious now. <laughs> obvious, yes. <laughs> yeah, it couldn't have been anything else, could it? Just like uh, 20 kids. Uh, not, not before, though, they were whinging about the cost of the lead weights, which they had to use to hold the cloth down over the corpse as they moved it through the city in a seemly manner. Now, bearing in mind that half the city had already turned up to watch the execution, I don't know why they were really so bothered about the seemly manner thing. Now, I'm sorry for the audience and for the panel, really, but uh, it gets a little bit more gruesome as time goes on with this. So, next question. How long do you think the first dissection took? Maybe a while. Yeah. A while. Yeah. Well, they didn't have a way to keep the bodies fresh, I don't think, so not that long. I'm mm. thinking days, though. This was in November in... Let me tell you that the dissecting room had an open wall at the back to keep the body cool while they were in process. I had four days. Yeah, yeah, that's what I said. Because if it's like the first legal dissection, they're going to want to cover a lot. So there's yeah. probably not a bit of him that well, wasn't going to pretend they've not done it. Tinkered with, yeah. yeah. I'd say at least two weeks. Two weeks? Oh my god. <laughs> it's gone from it's going to be real quick. <laughs> well, it was nine days. I think that even that's quite horrific, to be honest. <laughs> Different medical men from the Royal College of Surgeons demonstrated upon it each day. They began with a general discourse of the body and they kind of moved on to key organs. I won't go into all the detail, but basically, all the way down to the skeleton. And all that was left at the end were basically the hands and feet. And it took, it took them nine days. Even with the open wall at the back in November. I don't think I would have found that very pleasant. So the Scottish Enlightenment in the early 19th century saw Sir James Young Simpson discover chloroform anaesthesia and Dr Joseph Lister pioneer the use of antiseptic during surgery. But who was Dr Robert Knox? Yeah, you know it. Yeah, go on, tell us. He was the head of the anatomy classes at the university. Yes, yes. And do you know anything about him? His character. Oh, he was a dodgy man. He was, he was a creature that buys the meat. Yeah, he's a poem called him. Um, yeah, but yeah, he bought he bought from a couple of nerdy wells that came from Ireland. Right. Okay, I'll move on to that in a second. But I want to tell you a little bit about his what this guy was like, his background. Okay, so <clears throat> he was an influential lecturer in the in the university anatomy department. He was remembered as a bully who thrashed his contemporaries at school. He actually failed his anatomy exam the first time around and had to retake it. When he graduated from the University of Edinburgh in 1814, he joined the army and was posted to Brussels. And he actually attended the wounded from the Battle of Waterloo in the following year. So in 1822, he, he was a key force in establishing the Museum of Anatomy and Pathology at the College of Surgeons. He became a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, during which time he was involved in setting up the anatomical school and was famed for his gory lectures. But he was also obsessed with men's head sizes. So he measured the heads of men from Glasgow and Edinburgh. And what he discovered was that Glasgow men had bigger hat sizes. So how would you have interpreted this scientific discovery? Big, thick, skull class jeans. <laughs> Pretty close, actually. Yeah. <laughs> in, in, interesting topic. As a man who has got a massive head. Uh, so this, uh, yeah. Uh, so sorry, am I blocking the light out? I've never noticed that. <laughs> no, it's it, it's um, the, the the pain of not being able to wear a hat because no hat fits you. And I have to, the amount of Christmases that I've had to sellotape two of those paper hats together <laughs> so they actually fit around my head. Oh, they're small though. Aren't they are very small. I, yeah, they're they, very small. I've had that before. Don't worry about it. Sometimes it's only like the meat sweats from dinner that keeps it on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So basically, you thought Glasgow. 
men, uh, they're into all that engineering stuff, whereas the Edinburgh brains were much more refined in the city of learning. Than they were <laughs> Now, this gets worse, I'm afraid. He was also racially hostile to Highland Scots, Welsh people, and especially to Irish Celts. He openly advocated the, their ethnic cleansing at the time of the Great Famine. The Murder Act of 1752 stipulated that only the corpses of executed murderers could be used for dissection. But then the Judgment of Death Act of 1823 decreased the number of sentences punishable by death, just as the need to train more medical students was growing. And they kind of needed about one cadaver per student at the time. So what happened when the supply of bodies could no longer keep up with demand? They started digging up the bodies, yeah. These people were called, do you know what they were called? Uh, Resurrectionists. that's right, yeah. Apparently, it, technically speaking, it wasn't illegal to steal a body because no one actually owned a body, but disturbing a grave was. How did rich families try to stop their relatives being exhumed? Yeah, so I've got three ways that I know of. So do you want to hazard a guess, each of you, maybe? How would you stop your relatives from being exhumed by these resurrections? By pretending to be ghosts around the grave, just with a blanket <laughs> over their heads. Scaring yeah. them away. Kind of like scarecrows for grave robbers. Like, people would hang out in the graveyards. Um, if you go down the Royal Mile to the Canning Gate Kirk, uh, around the back of it, there's this gravestone standing up, and there's like little pock marks in it, and that's where someone's like literally shot his own they missed or they went through something. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, any other ideas? How would you? Some some sort of fortification, uh, some sort of like a, a concrete level or metal level. Uh, yeah, to, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, so one was basically to put down very heavy stone slabs over the graves. Kind of makes sense. Another one was to have mort safes, as they were called, or grave cages. So basically. Sort of constructions over the grave that you couldn't get in there. And another one was there's watchtowers in cemeteries, so some of the, you can still see these in the, in the cemeteries in Edinburgh where they literally had people watching over. Daniel Downey, who was on the panel yesterday, I didn't know this before, he said that's where the term graveyard shift comes from. Yeah, yeah. yeah which I didn't know. Uh, now, Americans experienced something similar in the late 1800s when they came up with some suitably American solutions to this problem. So Philip Clover, he patented the coffin torpedo in 1878, which would fire out a lethal blast of lead balls when the lid of the coffin was prized open. That, that sounds like the name of a shot. <laughs> you know, was, uh, you know uh, like Baby Guinness or something like that. Oh, but six, six coffin torpedoes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah, I, yeah. I think you should patent that, actually. I think, it, I think it'd be like Sam Booker and Bailey's. That'll be it, wouldn't it? 100%, yeah. Because yeah. then you get that yeah, yeah. We've just invented a shot. Yes. <laughs> you, well, there we go. Mark, we, mark the calendar. Let's, let's see if we can make it the second one then. So Thomas Howell, he patented a shell buried under the coffin and wired it so that thieves triggering it would set off a lawnmower. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, like, there's defending your dead relatives. And, and then just blowing them up. <laughs> dead relatives up and it's, dismembering someone. It's, it's literally, literally yeah. overkill. It's, yeah. it's, it's a typically American solution, isn't it? Wow, those are some pretty grave consequences. Indeed. <laughs> you should join my publisher. Yes. Uh, one advertisement for the Howell Torpedo read, 
Sleep well, sweet angel, let no fears of ghouls disturb thy rest, for above thy shrouded form lies a torpedo, ready to make mincemeat of anyone who attempts to convey you to the pickle with That's us. romantic. They, they took out an advert? This was in print. This was in print. You buy a torpedo for your gran. It's just got visions of like the little picture that goes with it on the advert. There was one, but obviously yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. on the screen in this one. Yeah. Anyway, this is about Edinburgh. So, back in 1827, as we've already alluded to, uh, a chap called William Hare, who was an Irish immigrant, he was owed four pound in rent by a fellow lodger, an army pensioner named Old Donald, and he died. So one of Knox's students gave Hare a tip-off that he'd be well paid if he delivered the corpse to Knox, which he did, and he received £7 and 10 shillings. And this obviously put an idea in Hare's head. He thought, hmm, easy money here. So how did they then, him and his accomplice, um, Burke, uh, William Burke, how did they how did things progress from that point? Well, artisanal, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Making themselves yeah. handmade bodies. Yeah, they started murdering people and stayed there. Yeah, yeah. so it was, a lo- it was a lodging house and they started murdering people so they could then supply more bodies and get more money. But obviously, if you were supplying someone who'd been shot or stabbed or something, then that wouldn't look so good. So how did they murder people in a way that uh, they could get away with this? This is one of my favourite things. Uh, I'm going to absolutely award the Tony in a second here as well. But they used a method of dispatching a man named Birkin. It was named after uh, his associate. Or it was William Burke, yeah. Um, who would get their victims really drunk, right? And then Birkin would use two fingers. Leash, I'm going to do this to you, okay? Um, <laughs> he used two fingers to hold the nose shut. I mean, I thought my the hands are too small. He'd hold the, the mouth shut. And then hair would like lie across him and quickly die. And the reason I love this so much is, and I can't believe I say this in front of literally one of the documented people, um, <laughs> A lassie once asked me to do that to her death. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she heard the story. <laughs> and she thought I sounded hot. Uh, See, I didn't mind you doing it to me before. The second I invention. Think, I, think, I think something's happening here. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> second invention of the day body snatcher kink. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, that's taken a turn that I didn't expect. <laughs> uh, I knew I was going to say it. Yeah. Well, with the same when you said you were talking about broken hair, I was like, I'm going to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> If you want me to edit that out later, I always can. So, uh, Keep it. <laughs> yes, how were they caught? Because they'd managed to murder 16 people before they were caught. But how did it go wrong? In the, and it was only a 10 month period in which they were doing this. Was it one person that wasn't actually dead? No. Well, they tried to yeah. get an Irish woman drunk, and that was a bad move. <laughs> Because she proved very, very difficult to get drunk enough to then try and murder her. So that, that didn't work too well. Um, because it was a lodging house, at one point a couple were in the house and they said, oh, you can't go in there. And obviously that raised their suspicion. So the first opportunity when, when they had the chance, they, they had a look in that room. And that's where they discovered a dead body under the bed. So they called for the police. However, they had actually uh, no evidence to link Birkenhair to the string of murders. So how did it end up with Burke getting executed? He snitched on him. Yeah, who snitched on him? Hare. Hare. One of the guys snitched on the other guys, Tom King's evidence, and he got off scot-free. So Burke was executed and Hare got away. Mm. What happened to him? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, what I tell people on tours is that he got attacked 
Netflix is recording is pretty much a dead rest of like, the the point. Uh, but I don't think it was really. There was a lot of shit in it. Yeah. So they did the, 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 there was <laughs> there was like a baying mob, and, and I think they kind of damaged the house. Um, he was sent to Dumfries on the on the coach, but he was recognised on the coach as someone from the, who'd seen him in court. So the police ushered him away in the dead of night and, and set him off on the road to England somewhere near Annan. And that's the last that anyone saw of him. So who knows what he got what up to after that. That's quite a place to hear where our audience is from. So Burke was hanged on the 29th of January 1829. And because of his notoriety, it's estimated that around 25,000 people watched the execution. People living in the tenements overlooking the scaffold were able to make a bit of extra money by hiring out their rooms for people to get a better view. And they uh, received anything between five and 20 shillings for doing that. What happened to Burke after his execution? Was he used for medical research? He was dissecting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He still is, isn't he? And he's still, his skeleton can still be seen in the museum next door. Mm-hmm. There's an article thing as well in the museum next door. There's an old bucket book down the leather, the bucket diary, Madame Burke on it, in his skin. And then, if you like that, you'll love this. If you go onto Victoria Street in the Cadies and Witchery Shop, they've got the William Burke Museum, and they've got a brass neck on it, a museum, to be honest. It's got one artifact in it, but it's a good one. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little coin purse made out of part of William Burke, and if I tell you that you can fit a lot more in that coin purse on a warm day than you can on a cold day, uh, you might have an idea about which part of his anatomy was turned into a coin purse. I didn't know that. Comedian <laughs> Susan Morris, he just got that, hasn't he? Uh, <laughs> it's... it's it's just the, the vivid image. No, <laughs> no, don't think about it. I mean, if you want to see it, we'll go after the show. I'll show you. It's, it. it's burned in my mind now. I can't unsee it. Think of a pink elephant instead of something. Okay, oh, that's not making it bad. <laughs> no, that's probably not yeah. very good either. Anyway, um, comedian Susan Morrison told me, because uh, she's mad into history, she couldn't do the show, unfortunately. She said that Burke's arse cheeks were made into an artifact as well, the, the skin from that. So it sounds like all of his body got to be it's made into something. something. I think we're going to make Alex faint. So, uh, we'll, <laughs> we should probably move on from this. Oh, I haven't said that though, and I've not said this in the show before. Uh, the procedure lasted two hours in this case, which is a lot better than nine days. And during that time, Munro, who was the um, lecturer uh, before Knox, and Munro was still working at the time, he decided to dip a quill into Burke's blood and write the following sentence This is written with the blood of William Burke who was hanged at Edinburgh. His blood was taken from his head. Yeah, it takes a certain time to be an anatomist, I think. What happened to Dr. Knox, do we know? Because he went to, well, he was effectively an accomplice to murder. So, did he get... His reputation was ruined, but he, uh, I don't think he faced any criminal charges. No, he was effectively just pushed out of polite society. And people didn't really trust him <laughs> for yeah, obvious reasons really fun, yeah. and he moved to London and died there in 1862 but he, he was still practicing anatomy and he wrote some books and how are Burke and Hare commemorated in Edinburgh yeah. a family friendly pub that you guys should go to in, in <laughs> and a not so family friendly strip club Oh, yes, it's a strip club. It's not family friendly. Somehow, only in Scotland yeah. could you commemorate the serial killers with a strip club. It just, I don't know. It just, yeah. yes. I was going to say it's, it's the weirdest link ever until Angus's story. <laughs> 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 it's actually something. 
Um, so the house where the murders took place was in Tanners Close, which was demolished in 1903, but the site is now occupied by Argy Argyle House in Lady Lawson Street. It's just um, at the end of the Westmorland Road at Westport. And what finally put an end to all this grave robbing that had been going on? They changed the laws so you were able to use bodies from the stamina from the yeah and then yes. So I said earlier said you couldn't yeah. sell bodies I think as well so it wasn't illegal at the time to yeah so they they kind of realised there were different things they could do to address this problem with the supply and demand so they could then use unclaimed bodies that uh, people had died in public institutions such as hospitals and workhouses and that enabled. The supply of 400 such bodies in Edinburgh alone in 1828. Um, we're almost out of time, so I just would like to thank the guests. So we had Alex, Lush, and Angus. And thank you. You have 15 seconds in which to plug your shows at the Fringe. So I'll start with you. Sorry. Okay, uh, first show is uh, The Joy of Dex. It's a stand up show about my uh, career as a DJ. That's uh, 3.15 at Cannons Gate, every day except Mondays, which is why I'm here. Uh, and 11.15 at night for Improv Provocateur, uh, Improv Panel Show, described as an audience member last year as the Aldi version of Whose Line Is It Anyway? <laughs> which is true. I'm doing a show with, on my phone, yes, with two <laughs> other Dundee guys at 10.45 at the Pear Tree slash Counting House. It's two venues, but it's one building. I don't really get it. It looks like this, uh, which is, a, it's a good photo, if nothing else. And, yeah, we do songs, comedy songs and poetry and all the weird stuff we get to do in Dundee because there's like three comedians in the whole city. So it's good fun if you want to, if you're free at 10.45am and wanting to see some comedy, which not a lot of people do as it turns out. 10.45am, too early for a show, guys. Make a note of that and do that. Uh, I'm also on at 11.15pm, so we're going to have to convince each other to come by. I've got flyers, so you can have them. He wins. Uh, just as a, uh, as a heads up before I give you my flyer, uh, my show's called Spicy Account, and it is about how I tried to become an online sex worker during the pandemic, and I'm not wearing clothes in the flyer, so I'm going to give it to you anyway. Here you go. I've got a very final On This Day piece to close the show with. So this was Richard Nixon standing down as US President on the 8th of August 1974. In the wake of the Watergate scandal and while facing impeachment, he announced he was going to step down as the US President, the first ever to do so. So here are some President Nixon quotes, which somehow I think seem rather timeless. Number one, solutions are not the answer. Number two, politics would be a hell of a good business if it weren't for the goddamn people. <laughs> Number three, in a 1977 interview with David Frost, when the president does it, that means it's not illegal. Uh, number four, reflecting on the Watergate scandal in 1978, he said, I was not lying. I said things that later on seemed to be untrue. <laughs> number five, it is the responsibility of the media to look at the president with a microscope, but they go too far when they use a proctoscope. And number six, which I quite like, because it's a nice slip of the tongue. In his 1974 State of the Union address at the height of the scandal at Watergate, he meant to talk about replacing the discredited present system, but instead said, I urge the Congress to join me in mounting a major new effort to replace the discredited president. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and on that note, thank you very much for attending. And goodbye.